This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT2. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Radio Dispatch, Laverne Cox, The Trans Advocate, Melissa Harris-Perry, This Week in Blackness, and Janet Mock. And a quick reminder that the last trans rights episode I did was met with some pretty poor reviews, so let's see if this one isn't at least a step in the right direction. Katie Couric has her own television show that I believe is called Katie. It's like a morning show, I think. She had uh, Laverne Cox, who is the actress from Orange is the New Black, a trans woman, and Carmen Carrera, who is also a trans woman, who is a model. And I actually know of Carmen Carrera from RuPaul's Drag Race, but that was before she came out as trans. So Katie had these two women on the show, and I've only seen a part of it. I didn't see the offending part, but it was being written about, and I saw it being shared a lot on, on Twitter. So... Katie Couric, who's um, interviewing these two women who are really accomplished people, like all sorts of really interesting things to talk about. And apparently Katie Couric found it prudent to ask Carmen about her genitals. And apparently the quote is she asked if Carmen's, quote, private parts are, quote, different now. To be fair, she asks that to all of her guests. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like to open every interview yeah. with government officials. Are your private parts different? Yeah, every actress and model that I speak with, I ask them about their private parts. Uh, uh, I don't ask them about their about their upcoming projects, <laughs> about how they got to where they are now. I just focus on private parts. Like we were joking before, you know, it'd be like saying, when you go pee-pee, yeah. do you stand or sit? Yeah, like, why are you asking this? Yeah. Are you talking to a small child who you have like a weird (laughs) invasive relationship with like literally there's no human you should ask that question to yeah unless it's your own kid and they're having like an issue with with their private parts there's no reason an adult human should ask another adult human about their private parts this is like basic basic shit you know much less in a television interview where you have two fucking professional women to ask about shit uh and so apparently and like i said i haven't seen this video part i've just read read about it but apparently carrera literally shushed correct and said that she didn't want to talk about that and said in the media they always focus on either the transition or the genitalia and i think there's more to trans people than just that and then the interview continued and laverne cox said when a surgery and transitioning and and genitals are all anybody talks about, then you don't talk about other really important narratives coming out of the trans community, like violence against against trans people, homicides against trans women, the high rates of homicides against trans women, all these other important issues. Yeah, constant discrimination. Yeah, yeah, unemployment, all this stuff. You know, I don't know how you could be sitting in an interview <laughs> yeah. and somebody asks you about your private parts and you don't just say fuck you and walk off the stage. Yeah. They were amazing, and as much as it's extremely frustrating that that's how Couric approached it. I think that the collective good that is, you know, two trans women being able to go on a probably broadly viewed morning show and actually speak for themselves and talk about, despite the questions from the interviewer, mm-hmm. uh, actually talk about, you know, issues that face tr- the trans community and just talk about th- themselves and their careers. And, you know, I think that that is, is really, really great, even though kind of like it's really great in spite of the clear limits of an interviewer like Katie Couric.
Kirk. Yeah, you have to criticize Kirk for for asking those questions. But it's better that Kirk had two trans women on, even though she probably knew that she didn't have the vocabulary. Maybe she didn't know that she didn't have the vocabulary. But not having the vocabulary to talk about trans issues in a way that's respectful is shitty, but it's probably more shitty to negate the existence of trans people, you know, sort of in the way that when sometimes people don't want to say something like that will be seen as racially insensitive, Uh so they engage in like colorblind language or something like that. So I think probably the stumbling blocks of, of cis people being like not knowing how to be respectful are probably ultimately like good stumbling blocks that that have to happen they're learning experiences yeah and as like as long as one cis person doesn't just remain like stuck in their narrow ignorant worldview maybe if in the next interview that Kirk does with trans women Kirk doesn't focus on genitals right, right. then then I think she would deserve credit for that yeah yeah absolutely and I think you know what's so great about how Carrera and Cox handled it is that they turned it in, into a learning opportunity and what us teachers call a teachable moment yeah um, they were able to turn it into an opportunity to talk about other issues facing the trans community and say this is why you shouldn't ask about <laughs> genitals because there's all these other issues to ask about and so I think that that yeah that's a very, very positive thing. Yes, I was burned, but I called it a lesson learned. A overturned, so I called it a lesson learned. My soul was returned, so I called it a lesson learned. Another lesson learned. All of us want to be educated, and, and Carmen was sort of uh, recoil a little bit when I asked her about her transition, and, and she said that, that people who are not educated about this or, or familiar with sort of transgenders, they're preoccupied with the genitalia question. And I'm wondering if you think that's true, and how, if, if you have the same feelings about that that Carmen does. I do. I was very proud of you for yes. saying that. And, and I do feel like there's a preoccupation with that, and I think that the preoccupation with transition and with surgery objectifies trans people, and then we don't get to really, really deal with the real lived experiences. The reality of, of trans people's lives is that so often we're targets of violence. We experience discrimination disproportionately to the rest of the um, um, community. Um, our unemployment rate is twice the national average if you're a trans person of color, it's four times the national average. The homicide rate in the LGBT community is highest amongst trans women. And if we, if we, when we focus on transition, we don't actually get to talk about those things. There's, there's a young woman named Ilan Nettles, uh, who um, on August 17th was just walking down the street with some friends, you know, minding her own business, and she was catcalled by a couple of guys. And one of them, they, once they realized she was trans, she was beaten into a coma, and five days later she died. This is the reality of so many trans people's lives in this country, trans women of color, who are, whose lives are in danger simply for being who they are. And, and we're looking for justice for Elan's murder, and we're looking for justice for so many trans people across this country. And by focusing on bodies, we don't focus on the lived realities of that oppression and that discrimination. Show. 
It's interesting, no one has the same definition for gender. So gender is a generic term that's used to refer to any and all aspects of gender orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Gender orientation refers to one's subjective experience of one's physical sex. That is, your own private experience of your body, your sexed body. Gender identity refers to one's subjective experience of a cultural sex. So I identify as a man, I identify as a woman, neither or both. So gender expression refers to one's subjective experience of communicating gender orientation and gender identity. So how we do that, how we dress, how we talk, how we walk, all the kind of social cues. So that's my expression of gender. Taken together, these three dimensions of gender are the subjective results of the brain's neurology within the context of our society's culture. Any questions about gender? Yep, okay. So transgender, also known as trans or trans with an asterisk, you might see, TG. It's an umbrella term that encompasses a variety of people, including transsexuals, cross-dressers, drag kings and queens, as well as bi-gender androgynous individuals. Transgender came into common usage during the 1970s, but was first used in 1965 to refer to transsexuals who wanted genital reconstructive surgery. Today, the term transgender is used to refer to individuals who are not cisgender. And cisgender, aka cis or cissexual, is an umbrella term that encompasses a variety of people who are not transgender. For example, this term is used to refer to someone who was sex male at birth, uh, subjectively experiences their sex to be male, identifies as male, and experiences his identity in a manner consistent with cultural male gender stereotypes. Any questions? Yeah, okay. So now that we have talked about some terms, the next section is about connecting the dots, and, and, and that gets into talking about what your your trans clients might be dealing with um, and it talks about cis privilege that is uh, now just define that it refers to a set of unearned advantages that individuals who identify as their gender as the gender they were assigned at birth accrue solely due to having a cisgender identity this section has a list of various um, examples of cis privilege that transgender people have asserted. So like number one, you can use the public restroom without fear of verbal abuse, physical intimidation, or assault. Yes. The one uh, says who was sex male at birth. Yes. Born male. Meaning that regardless if you are, so in Texas, if you were born intersex, right? That means that, uh, so one out of every 500 live births in America is born intersex. That means that their body, their chromosomes, somehow are representative of both male and female. They are assigned a gender, okay? A doctor will make the call, okay, you're going to be male, you're going to be female. 
You are assigned a sex, regardless of what your gender orientation is. So we are all assigned a sex. And generally that happens without genetic testing. So they look and say, the doctor thinks that your external genitalia, genitalia looks female, so you're assigned mm -hmm. the sex of female without any kind of genetic testing. Right, exactly. So, uh, and, and whenever we say assign male, so we assign a child a, a set of stereotypes that we, you know, we, and I say we as in culture, our culture hopes that and expects that they should adhere to. You know, we're going to give a little boy, little, you know, boy toys, we're going to give them blue clothing and those kinds of things because that somehow connotes male. We're going to assign that to them. We're going to culturate them in, 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 in those expectations. So when we talk about assigning male and assigning female at birth, that's what we're talking about. And that's a very good question. So, so my next question would be, if they're an adult and mm -hmm. have both, they're called what? So hermaphrodite is an older term that's fallen out of use. Back in around 1940, the term that was, um, here in America at least, that came into common usage within the medical community was intersex. And within the community of intersex individuals, uh, intersex is the term, is the preferred term. Question. Yes. So on cis privilege, you're talking about those privileges that are inherent, meaning cis, cis privileges of being a female, cis privilege of being a male. And then what happens is the cisgenderism happens because it's going against that privilege of being male or being considered female, and then there comes that dichotomy of this crazy. Exactly. And, and let me give you some real world examples that uh, I, I've personally seen, and this is kind of historically. So if you are a trans person and you're working at a job, it has been historically perfectly legal for your employer to come up to you and say, look, I just found out you're one of those freaks. We don't like your kind here. You're fired. Perfectly fine, perfectly legal. Let's say that that, uh, that, that employer was a real ass and decided to call your landlord and let them know that you, they have someone like that living there. It would be perfectly fine, perfectly legal for that landlord to go knock on your door and say, look, we didn't know you were one of those kind of people. We don't like that here in this kind of neighborhood. Get out. Now that you're homeless, you know, it, it's been perfectly legal, perfectly fine for lots, in fact all, historically, um, homeless shelters, to go, we don't like your kind here either. Yeah, we might have some extra beds, but you can't sleep here. And so what does that lead to? And so in, in the very back, uh, it talks about the results of that, the stats. 46% are unemployed. 28% attempt suicide. 30% are homeless, 21% uh, HIV positive. Now, I want to just pause on that. 21% HIV positive. Can anyone give me the rate of HIV infection within sub-Saharan Africa? 80% Yep. 
5%. And that's, that's, that's significant. That really is very significant. So I just want to juxtapose that, that rate. It's the highest HIV infection rate, period. Um, victim of rape, 42%. 42% of the population, victim of rape. 48%, victim of assault. And of course, 56% no health insurance. So, so that's kind of the real world effect of cis privilege, of, of these kinds of institutionalized barriers that push a community kind of to the, to the edge of our society in, in real world terms. You can't get a job or uh, you are thrown out of your house because maybe your parents don't particularly like people like you. And maybe the child shelter, the youth shelter in your town, decides that they don't like trans people either. And let's say that maybe uh, you go looking for social services and you you walk in and the receptionist laughs at you. Give you a for instance, I, I have a friend who uh, was HIV positive, well, still is HIV positive. And uh, she started her transition, went to a very well-known provider, walked in the door, the receptionist laughed at her. And so she turned around and walked away and fell out of care for that reason. This ain't the life I thought I'd live. This ain't the home I'd hoped we'd make. This ain't the path I thought I chose. Listeners of this show know that I've been telling you about Squarespace for a little while because they're an excellent service to go to to build your own really good-looking, really professional websites for cheap, like real cheap, and then you get full service, customer service, and, and technical support, and all that excellent stuff. Today, the update is that a listener wrote in saying that he had actually taken my advice and and built his own website. So Aaron, who's a listener and a member of the show and the executive director of his own nonprofit, built touchthesky.climbing.org to support his organization, obviously, Touch the Sky Climbing. And, you know, he said that it was time and money well spent. Thanks for the good advice. Not, not too exciting so far, but I actually went and looked at the website. And I will admit, I've never really had an interest in climbing. But his website is so gorgeous that I like instantly wanted to go climbing. It, they, they use this template that just has sort of like magic pictures that scroll up and down and float, uh, you know, with the website, little bits of text and quotes here and there. And I, I was so inspired. Like I, I want to go out into the wilderness and climb right now. So if you've ever wondered what you could do with a website, you know, with a little bit of text and just a few pictures, you probably already have laying around. Go check out touchtheskyclimbing.org, and then you can try Squarespace yourself, build your own amazing website, try it for free for 14 days, and then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT2, that's L-E-F-T, and the number 2, that gets you 10% off your purchase, and that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. This ain't the flag I thought we'd raise, this ain't the wind I'd hoped would blow. This ain't the ship I thought would sail This ain't the rose I'd hoped would bloom 
So the original story uh, comes from Grantland, which is like a sports website. Sports and pop culture, both kind of a thing. And apparently it has quite a great reputation. I saw a lot of people saying how much, a lot of progressive writers saying how much they hope to write for Grantland one day and how much they admired um, the, the website, but... Uh, so there's this the, the story, Dr. V's Magical Putter, written by uh, a journalist named Caleb Hannon. And um, right away, the, the, the title, Dr. V's Magical Putter, and the subhead is The Remarkable Story Behind a Mysterious Inventor Who Built a Scientifically Superior Golf Club. Um, and the first sentence of the story is, Strange Stories Find You at Strange Times. So already we've heard magical, mysterious, and strange, which is just... Uh, these are words that you're going to see throughout the story uh, and throughout people's reactions to it. So the story itself begins the it's a long read too it's 8000 words i'm not i'm going to try to do my, my best to really uh-huh. fly through the summary but the author hannon discovers this this putter um that has like a lot of buzz around it and some like some important golfers are saying how great it is um and then he discovers that this that the person who invented it is a woman named Dr. S.A. Ann Vanderbilt, and uh, she's kind of mysterious. And so Caleb wants to uh, Han, sorry Hannon wants to uh, learn more about the putter and learn more about its creator, um, and figure out if the putter is really so amazing. And so he reaches out to Dr. V and uh, and says, can I write a story about your putter? And she says, sure, as long as you promise to focus on the science of the putter and not the scientist. Dr. V says, the conditions under which I am talking to you are that it is a story about the putter, not a story about me. And the journalist says, all right. And, and that is key. That yes. is that is the guidelines as established as presented by Hannon in the story. In the story. So as Hannon starts to learn about the putter, uh, he looks into some of what some of Dr. V's credentials. Uh, she claims she went to MIT. All this stuff. He can't find records of her going to MIT, and he he starts to look into her and her story and her credentials. Um, he it's starting to become clear to him that some of their credentials uh might not be reliable um he he figures out that that Dr. V was actually a mechanic and didn't go to MIT and over the course of his reporting he discovers uh that she's also trans when he when he discovers this or when he realizes it he writes it sounds cliche but a chill actually went up my spine which is also which is a moment that a lot of people are pointing to of like why why <laughs> why right. what why um so at that point he begins to misgender her and use her uh her dead name in other words her name that was assigned that to was her was assigned to her yeah so Dr. V says it becomes, you know, hostile towards hostile is such a like loaded word. But basically, Dr. V is like not no longer interested in collaborating with him. Yeah, it's like very clearly withdrawing. Yeah, withdrawing, trying to to create distance. It's escalating. And so basically it gets to the point where Dr. V um, and her partner come to uh, Hannon and say, if you're going to write about this, like sign this non-disclosure agreement saying that you aren't going to disclose these things about Dr. V's past, you know, including the fact that she's trans. And, uh, and Hannon says that he couldn't agree to that because I guess from his, uh, the, the, the journalistic compass that was guiding him thought that he couldn't agree to not disclose the fact that she's trans. Also, he knows at this point that, um, Dr. V has a history of, um, of 
uh, suicide attempts. And her communications with him are getting increasingly distressed. She writes to him and says, you're about to commit, commit a hate crime. Um, her partner is, is basically you know, begging him, are you trying to ruin our company? Why are you doing this? And at one point, uh, her partner says, have, have a nice, uh, I hope you can, what is, it's something like, uh, have a nice life or something. And, uh, you know, something that, that they're, that is clearly, again, really, they're, they're essentially all but begging or begging, uh, Hannah not to disclose this information. He decides to go ahead and do so. Um, and he includes in his piece that he gets a call not long after that Dr. V has committed suicide. And he includes this in the piece as the kind that this is like the final, it's almost like, her being trans is kind of presented as this twist and then her suicide is kind of presented as the as i mean forgive me for using such like crass terms but it's basically presented as like the kicker right right it's the kicker it's the punchline like it's the it's like the kind of tada moment at the end and that's clearly the way that it functions i mean and all the people who are sharing it who say you got to read to the end you got to read to the end it functions as this sort of like you know, like in the sixth sense or something like that's clearly the 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 work that it's doing structurally. And that's how people understood it, which is why everyone said you have to read till the end. Right. So so that's the that's the piece in a nutshell. It goes up on January 15th. Initially, it's it's you know, it's being widely shared, widely praised. And right. And all these people are sharing, saying you have to read till the end. People describing this as at this story, Abby, uh, our web designer storified a bunch of journalist reactions saying this story is bananas how you know how bizarre and one person who said you know read till the end and then it's just it's so it's it's really intense and and Hannah the author says I agree a total gut punch so again we're talking about this like it's a movie like it's like it's the sixth sense instead of talking about it as this is a person's life a per the subject of his story uh, ended her life throughout the course of his reporting, and he presents that as if it is just a kind of enticing part of an enticing story. There is just a, a complete, in, both in the piece and in some of the initial reactions, there is a complete uh, uh, seeming obliviousness to the fact that we're talking about a real human being. It's extremely difficult to imagine the story being written the same way, but being about a cis person, and, and it, it's difficult to imagine that a reaction would be as like kind of weightless you know mm-hmm. it's not like gleeful or anything but it's like it's treated as just a, oh w- what a novelty it's really as if as if the humanity of the subject is just not realized yeah i mean i think that the defense that primarily white cis men have given to uh to hannon to, to sort of circle the wagon and i think that that part of hannon's you know what he has tweeted about this is presenting uh dr v's trans identity as one of a series of frauds right right and that's that's uh sort of that seems to be both uh, Hannon's and other people's, other cis people's defense of of the the piece. That it's newsworthy because Doctor V lied about credentials. Therefore, you have to include uh, her trans identity. And uh, I think that probably like that that to me is perhaps the most destructive 
kind of defense of this piece because it relies on, as numerous, numerous people have pointed out, it relies on an understanding of trans identity that is used uh, to get murderers off when they murder trans people right because it's seen as fraud right the very that that the very act of being trans is deception right and and not only not only deception and and fraud but also salacious yeah that 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 uh the dr b's gender is treated as as this mysterious backstory not something that should be respected right. uh, not, not that it falls completely within the guidelines agreed to at the beginning of their interaction right right um so the piece came out these are the, like we said there was these initial reactions praising it for being bananas and, and In, bizarre including david carr from the new york times uh amongst many many other prominent people but that's he you know david carr certainly stands out as as one of them who hasn't I don't think really recanted. I don't think so. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, Abby did a storify of both people's initials reaction, and then she did a, another storify of people kind of evolving. And a lot of, you know, credit where credit is due, a lot of people who initially praised the piece after seeing, I think, some other perspectives were like, <laughs> oh, I should think about this a little bit more. Here in Nerdland, we have loved watching Laverne Cox in Orange is the New Black, portraying a transgender prisoner named Sophia Bursett. Laverne brings humanity and complexity to the role, resisting the kind of glib and farcical manner in which trans people are often presented. Laverne says she drew her inspiration for the role from a very specific source. Every day that I showed up to work, I thought about Cece McDonald and the many trans women of color all across this nation who are unfairly incarcerated. I am still furious. I'm angry that Cece is in prison simply for defending herself. But I'm so moved by her courage and leadership, even from behind bars. Cece McDonald is an African-American trans woman who, along with a group of friends, was verbally attacked late one night in Minneapolis by a group of white people who shouted racist, anti-gay, and anti-trans slurs. The argument escalated, and one of the women slashed a glass across Cece's face, leaving a cut that required 12 stitches. In the ensuing fight, Cece stabbed one of the men in the group in, in, in the chest with a pair of scissors. He died. And Cece was arrested, charged with murder, and accepted a deal in which she pled guilty to second-degree manslaughter and received a 41-month sentence. She served 19 months of that sentence, getting time off for good behavior and time served before her sentencing. She served the time in a men's prison. And during her sentencing hearing, Cece explained that on the night of the attack, she saw a racist, transphobic, narcissistic bigot who did not have any regard for my friends or me. And that is not what she saw when she left prison on Monday. Because waiting to greet Cece was a group of friends and supporters, including Laverne Cox, who is working on a documentary about Cece.
Cece joins us now live from Minneapolis. Sitting next to her is Katie Burgess, who's the executive director of Trans Youth Support Network. And here at my table in New York is Laverne Cox, an actress who stars in Orange is the New Black. She's also a transgender activist and producer of the upcoming documentary, Free Cece. And also joining us is Ray Carey, the executive director of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. Thanks to everybody for being here. Thank you. So Cece, this is your first television interview since your release, and I just want to start by giving you the mic. What, what would you like to say to us? Um, well, I'm just really blessed and excited to be back in the world so I can uh, begin, or should I say continue to advocate and be a leader in the trans community and uh, the African-American community and the LGBTQ community and to be a role model and inspiration for trans women and trans women of color. As we think about Cece's case, I keep thinking, had Cece not been a trans woman, had been a, a cis African-American woman who was attacked in a racial attack and then ended up going to jail as a result of defending herself, that the civil rights community around racial issues would likely have gotten involved in the way that the trans community got involved this time. Like, in other words, I wonder if it was hard for the racialized civil rights community to see Cece as part of the community because she's a trans woman instead of a cis woman. Well, some folks in the black community did. Cece, yes. uh, Mark Lamont Hill wrote a wonderful piece, Why Aren't We Fighting for Cece, for mm -hmm. Ebony.com that won a GLAAD Media Award earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And there were some folks from the black community here <laughs> in the black community. I, I'm going to keep counting myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, who, were, who have been advocating for Cece. But I think Cece's case really is representative of some, so many of the harsh realities and the intersections of transphobia, transmisogyny, mm -hmm racism and classism that faced um, the lives of so many trans women of color, right? Our homicide rate is the largest in the, um, in the LGBT community. In 2012, 53%, over 53% of the homicides were trans women. 73% were people of color. 16% um, of transgender people have been incarcerated compared to 10% of the rest of the population. So there's, there's, a, there's forces, um, systemic forces in our society that say that we're not who we um, are, say we are, that disavow our identities, to say that we're always and only the gender that we were assigned at birth and to say that we should not exist, that we should disappear. Mm -hmm. What is so powerful about Cece's story is that night on June 5th, 2011, she said that I will not disappear. Mm -hmm. I will not be a statistic. What Miss McDonald's experience shows us is that, in fact, we do need the policies and even when they are in place, we need to change hearts and minds and attitudes. Let us not forget, mm -hmm. her experience happened in the state of Minnesota, the very first state with a non-discrimination law. We now have marriage mm -hmm. equality, they protect against gender identity discrimination. And yet this still happened to mm -hmm. her. We are seeing just a few glimmers of hope. We've got a long way to go in terms of creating change for transgender people in this country, particularly transgender people who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Few glimmers of hope. We, uh, Los Angeles uh, Police Department has created a safe facility for transgender people. Mm -hmm. uh, just this week, we had a ruling out of the First Circuit insisting uh, or upholding a ruling that transgender people must receive the health care that they deserve while they are incarcerated just like everyone else. So we are seeing a few glimmers of hope, but we have a long way to go to push for change and to push not only for laws, but for changes in hearts and minds and attitudes. Katie, let me come to you on this. Uh, yeah, I, I think this was a... Uh 
A really interesting moment actually for our campaign here where we'd been advocating for Cece the entire time that she was incarcerated. Upon sentencing, everyone was totally ready to go to bat for her, uh, to advocate for her placement wherever she wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And people were definitely ready to press charges against the Department of Corrections, file a suit to get her out of a men's prison and into a women's prison if that's what she wanted. But she made it very clear to us, a women's prison isn't going to be safe. Hmm. A men's prison isn't going to be safe. Prisons aren't safe for people, yeah. period. Cece, I'm just going to say this as we go out. I hope that, um, that, that now that you're home, that you are just playing on repeat, every, like all day long. I just hope you are playing Beyonce flawless and you are just being like all of the amazing that you are and uh, reminding yourself that you woke up like this and you are indeed flawless. Wake up, post up, run around in it, blossom on that. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. There's this graph here. Uh, comparing uh, rates of PTSD, social anxiety, among the trans population. And this really shouldn't be news. I mean, you've got a population that has uh, high rates of assault and rape and discrimination. So it compares uh, rates of PTSD and uh, between the transgender population, the cisgender population, and military personnel. And uh, as you can see, the trans population's rate of PTSD is off the charts. Um, and, and to give you a sense of that, I've had clients show up numerous times to their appointments, black and blue, because they dared get on the bus. I've known numerous trans people who were murdered. And I've known numerous individuals who wound up taking their own life. The, the reality for trans people is that it's likely that they've known someone who, if they've not been murdered, they've uh, had an attempt made on their life, they're going to know people who killed themselves. They're going to, if they haven't been raped, they know someone who's raped, been raped. If, if they've not been beaten, they certainly know people who have, been, who have been beaten. And so if they're fortunate enough to have their own place to live, you know, generally, whenever, before they get ready to go outside, they're going to spend about two hours getting ready. And not because they think they're RuPaul and a diva. It's because they want to ensure that when they walk out that door, they're not going to get beaten or killed. 
And you live with that day after day after day after day, 24-7, year in, year out. Let's give the the overview of the interview, what he got right, what he got wrong. Because it wasn't... It, we watched it... I think we watched the whole thing, mm-hmm. right? The I think two so. parts. Um, before we started recording. And uh, it d- definitely struck me as the word that you used was limited, which I think is is absolutely right. It, it didn't strike me initially, and you know maybe it struck other people initially, as, as bad as the Katie Couric interview with Laverne Cox and Carmen Carrera. Um, it didn't strike me as quite that level of being offensive, and it it does sort of feel like Piers Morgan's heart for whatever it's worth, and maybe it's not worth that much. It feels like his heart is kind of in the right place, but maybe not. Maybe it is like maybe there's much more to it than that. Well, I think it just, I think it, it has to do with like where you set the bar, you uh, know, that's, the, that's definitely a good point. And like going into this, like both you and I were like expecting it to be a real mess. I thought it was going to be terrible. Like really, really like every second of it would be bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, except for when Janet Mock was speaking because she's amazing. But like, I think that you and I both went into it. Not unlike I went into seeing the first anchor man, assuming it was going to be very bad. And then, <laughs> And with Anchorman, the first one, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, but with this, I just went into it being like, this is going to be a, everything about this is going to be a mistake and a uh-huh. misfire. going to be one of those like white knuckle interviews where you just grip the side of your chair and you're like, when will this be over? Right. So, so in terms of setting the bar, I mean, you know, he used the right pronouns. I don't think in his words he was necessarily actively disrespectful. I think he he probably thought he was trying to do the, the right thing. Um, he was condescending, though. He was very condescending, and Definitely. and he did. I mean, he just did the thing that 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 you know. Again, there is this glad media like like guide for how to write about and talk about and talk with trans people in the media. So it's again, it's not like. This isn't uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. I mean, for Piers Morgan, he probably thinks it is because he's just too busy correcting people's your spellings all day to actually like read the style guide. But like, it's not as if he couldn't have like prepped for the interview and been like, "What shouldn't I do?" Right. Fixate completely on uh, you know, on her genitals and on you know her previous life and show before pictures and all that. Right. And the Chiron that that the producers used was just unforgivably terrible. Yeah, yeah. The thing the the, the Chiron being the thing at the bottom that says like, you know, Janet Mock writer, right. <laughs> author of the new book, Reinventing Realness, which is what it could have said. Instead, it said, was a boy until age 18, not, which is unforgivable. Yeah, not, not right. And, not right, not true, not accurate. Right. 
Yeah, Not that's good. that's the thing, and it's it's treated like it's in journalism. It's so often treated being respectful to trans people is treated as like a. Oh well, I'm not an activist. I'm a journalist. But right, if you're, I mean, it's just not accurate to say she was a boy until age 18. She's a trans woman. Like, figure out how to fucking talk about it accurately. You, yeah. And you made that point about Chelsea Manning. It's not accurate to use wrong pronouns for Chelsea Manning. It's not accurate to use the wrong name for Chelsea Manning. Right. You should have to issue a correction. Yeah. Um, at the very least, and hopefully coupled with an apology. And, and so, from a, from a television producing point of view, I mean, you know. Uh, who knows whether Piers Morgan is responsible for that, Chiron, you know, I have no idea the mm-hmm. likelihood of that. But, um, you know, so so again, setting the bar quite low, he was, you know, he was cordial. He used the right pronouns. I mean, you know, he wasn't hostile. <laughs> right. like, but that's a terrible place to set the bar. Yeah. Um, and I don't want the. I mean, I think the last time I watched him interview somebody was when he interviewed Rachel Chantel, actually. Right. Uh, which was i mean which that actually i I found his interviewing style to be rather repulsive right Um, that was so so condescending yeah um so i don't even know i (laughs) can't even compare like but uh you know but but yeah he they they show pictures from mock's childhood um you know which which can be fine but i know like parker who we had on the on the show uh a couple of weeks ago um during the Grantland stuff, tweeted, if you're going to ask me to make a media appearance, stop asking me for before and after pictures. Right. Which is like, that's basic. It, because again, it, it goes back to what Laverne Cox said to Katie Couric, which is like, when you fixate on the transition rather than fixating on the person or trans issues more generally, it keeps the conversation extraordinarily limited, which is exactly what happens with, with Piers Morgan. Again, I mean, because Janet Mock is an incredible speaker and it, it just a incredibly captivating person like she manages to make the interview really great and interesting kind of you know in spite of Piers Morgan's questions which are like he's talking about how did you tell your boyfriend um what did he say what happened after surgery I mean these things that are like you know again they're not actively hostile but it's just I want to hear so many things about Janet Mock Uh I want to hear so many things about her book I want to hear so many things about her life uh but fixating I mean you know, on this, and that you know, the the Chiron maybe maybe Piers Morgan didn't write was a boy until age eighteen. But the fact is that that was the underlying. Like, not only was that, that literally present throughout the interview, that was the present. That was what was clearly on Piers Morgan's mind the entire interview, which is right. the problem. That's that that's the logic of the questions that he asked. Right, right, which right. which explains why he one of the, one of his questions is uh, was there a moment after. The operation when you looked at yourself in the mirror and sort of said, this is what I'm supposed to look like, or that was roughly his question. And Mach really, uh, in an ingenious way, responds, well, it was actually before. Yeah. And it's a wonderful way to undercut the supremacy of of like capital O operation. Right, right. And I think Parker just tweeted before we started recording, like, what does Piers Morgan think of like about me? Right. You know, if you're a trans woman who who hasn't had an operation, like what is, does that mean? Like what does Piers Morgan think then? Right. And so that's when it really gets into the, the most offensive ways that that logic is 
terrible. Right. And how would he treat somebody who was on the uh-huh. show, maybe who wasn't interested in, in having an, uh, you know, who, in getting an, you know, again, operation, as our listeners have been so wonderful to point out, means a lot of things, uh-huh. a lot of things to a lot of different people. And so uh, this, yeah, this supremacy of like, well, you know, right. So it begs the question, like, well, is Piers Morgan only honoring her pronouns, like, because he, like, knows the specifics of whatever surgery she had? Like, um, like, and yeah. obviously that doesn't matter. Right. Um, and one thing that Mock said in the interview that I thought was amazing was, again, it, Morgan kind of framing it as, like, before and after, before and after. Like, going back, did you ever go back? He said at some point, like, did you ever, like, go back to being a boy yeah, or something? Like, think about going back or something. And she, again, amazingly, is just like, I was always moving forward. I was always moving forward towards who I really was. It's just amazing. She, it's like, she did so well with these, with these very, very, very limited questions. You know, Piers Morgan is a public figure who spends all day on Twitter. If people tweeted him and say, hey, you know, next time you have a trans woman on, don't have the crayon was a boy until age 18. Uh, you know, maybe don't fixate so much on, um, you know, on surgery or on, uh, her relationship with her boyfriend. Like, so many, I mean, it would be disrespectful to any woman who had written a book about a lot of things and then just be like, so tell us about your boyfriend, you know. Right. Are you getting married? <laughs> right. Which is another thing that, that Piers Morgan mentioned several times. Are you getting married? Are you getting married? Yeah. Which, and Mach was like, back off. <laughs> And she, she handled it so gracefully, but was also like, why are you doing this? And, uh, it's just, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know the specifics of every single tweet being sent at Piers Morgan, but it's just so reasonable for people to use Twitter to say, okay, here are some of the things that, like, were disrespectful about that interview. You know, and, and Janet Mock, I think, is, is absolutely rightfully, dis, uh, rightfully upset about the cryon. Uh, Chiron. Chiron, whatever. Sorry, what, it sounds yeah. like a Superman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Kryptonite. Uh, you know, she tweeted, like, was a boy until age 18? Get it the fuck together, Piers Morgan Live, which is a completely reasonable response. Imagine if somebody, uh, went on TV to talk about their book and the, the subheading was, like, had gallbladder surgery at right. 17. You yeah. know, like... <laughs> and people would be like, why? Why is this... You know, it's just, it's, it's just irrelevant. It's, it's, and it's also private medical stuff. Like, obviously in her book she talks about, like, being trans. But it's just, it, you know, I think, our, like I said, our listeners have done a really, have really helped me to understand, like, why, first of all, why understanding things as, you know, quote, pre-op and, quote, post-op are super limited and, you know, rely on all sorts of gatekeeping standards for what a real woman is, quote-unquote. And it's just, you know, and, like, sure, maybe Piers Morgan doesn't, no, like we learn from our listeners. Maybe Piers Morgan doesn't know, but you know what? You know how he can learn listening to people. You know what's awesome for like learning things? Twitter. People can actually like say, "Hey, Piers Morgan, here's something that's disrespe- disrespectful." And if he has time to engage with the gun people all day and the people <laughs> misspelling the words "you" and "your," uh, then why can't he just read it? Why can't he deal with it? He deals with trolls, trolls all day. Yeah, and I mean, I, w- I, I guess I would um, differ maybe a little bit in what you said in terms of like whether like it's relevant or not. I just think that there's a much better there's like a way to say like what the producers wanted to say 
should have been something along the lines of like Mach was assigned the wrong gender uh-huh, or right. yeah because because it, it is it's part it, of it's, her being trans is 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 you know part of her story of course right and so I think that it's wrong in terms of the like the language because it's disrespectful and it's not precise I don't think that it's wrong for that to for like something ab- about her trans identity to be like part of the conversation sure, yeah it's just a way of you just have to like change the way that you think about gender if you're Piers Morgan sure. which he clearly is not willing to even take the first steps to do As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Appeals Court announced that... um. It's cruel and unusual uh, punishment to deny transgender inmates surgery. Uh, a panel of first uh, uh, circuit courts of appeals ruled two to one on Friday in favor of Massachusetts transgender inmate Michelle Kosalik, affirming a lower court ruling that she deserves the sex reassignment surgery uh, her doctors have prescribed. The epic ruling deta- details Kosalik's 20 year struggle to obtain the proper treatment and the links that the Massachusetts Department of Corrections have gone to delay uh, a, a delay allowing her to receive it. A violation of the Eighth Amendment and the Constitution, which forbids cruel and unusual punishment Jesus, 20 years well first of all wow second of all i'm actually still shocked that the that the courts uh actually realized that says this is crazy but please note like okay so that's one uh, that what i I just uh initially read the story from was the coverage from think progress right but think progress uh, links to uh a the story on boston.com guess would you like to know the title the the headline for the boston.com uh article Federal appeals court upholds Massachusetts inmates' right to, to taxpayer-funded sex change surgery. Jesus. Really? <laughs> I understand. Oh, you got to love America. Oh, so that, the press. They have all those words. <laughs> and they fuck it up every time. Federal, federal courts appeal. Like, and they specifically wanted to make sure this taxpayer funding. Like, they, they completely changed the, uh, the, whole, the whole sense of the argument uh, there. Like, uh, from the idea of, uh, of someone uh, being denied something that w- would be uh, reasonable and, and that the courts uh, hold up, they say, uh, nope, your tax dollars. Because they want, basically, I would argue that a headline like that is actually asking folks to get upset. Yes. They're like, why my taxpayer dollars got to go towards that? Yes. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Yes. And it also creates the environment, but it's Boston, so, huh? That. No, but Boston, are- Boston, they've made the argument that Boston is, uh, has the reputation of, like, the old, the old, old, uh, fellows club or whatever. But the, well, if you look at, like, who they vote for and stuff like that, yeah. they're a very progressive space, just with the reputation of Boston. Well. 
no comment. So <laughs> I um, here's my thing. My problem with leading things like that, and there was a leading thing in Cron Four that, which is a Bay Area station, that drove me nuts. It it creates the environment that a group of people are not welcome anywhere, let alone near your tax dollars. And equality is um, something that should not be this harsh. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Jim Collins Foundation. The American Medical Association has affirmed the medical necessity of gender-confirming surgery for transgender people who require surgery to live healthy, happy lives. This affirmation is echoed by the American Psychological Association, which has recognized that while not all transgender people want or need to transition, for those who do, access to medical care is vital. Despite the unified position of the medical community, very few public or private health insurance companies cover transgender-related surgery or other care. Insurance companies are blatantly ignoring the fact that gender-confirming surgery is not classified as cosmetic or elective. As discrimination against transgender people is overt and widespread, often resulting in economic hardship, hearing that their insurance policy has a, quote, transsexual exclusion clause often means being told that surgery is financially out of reach. The Jim Collins Foundation raises money for those transgender people who need gender-confirming surgery as an important step towards becoming their true selves, but are without the financial means to access care. The founders and the board recognize that not every transgender person needs or wants surgery. Their mission is to aid those who do by abating the despair that comes with realizing the monetary hurdle is too high to clear. Finding surgery unattainable can result in hopelessness, depression, and sometimes suicide. Both Foundation co-founders, Tony Ferriolo and Drew Levasseur, are fierce advocates who are dedicated to educating providers as well as lobbying for full recognition of the civil rights for all members of the LGBT community. Through their work at the Jim Collins Foundation, they are changing individual lives while contributing to a growing societal understanding of the needs and rights of transgender people. The Jim Collins Foundation will be accepting applications at their website, jimcollinsfoundation.org, from April 1st through August 1st. Selections for grants are made based on financial need and level of preparedness to begin the surgical transition process. Allies who are moved to help can certainly do so by donating to this worthy nonprofit, but also by clicking to see if your own insurance company discriminates. Until the trans community is granted the same access to medically necessary care and protections from discrimination under the law, they will remain marginalized. Pressuring insurance companies and elected officials to actively move toward full equality is action we can and must all take. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage? I am a woman. I live my life as a woman, and that's how I should be perceived. I'm not passing as anything, I'm being. 
being myself. I have such um, a complicated relationship with the concept of passing, period. Not even applying it to my own life, but just the idea that to pass means that you're passing is something that you're not, right? Passing comes off as if you're you are actively, right, because it's a verb, you're actively engaging in, in some kind of trickery or deception. And so that's where I get irritated with passing because anytime that I walk on the street, my gender is visible. I am a woman. People see me and take me as a woman. And that is not passing. That's me just being. But once I disclose that I am trans, things change. And then I become an oddity, I become an object, something that is objectified and gawked over, and my humanity and womanhood is then checked and um, put into question. So I can just imagine someone who does not have the conditional privilege of passing, having to have to deal with that all the time. So those are the, the layered relationships with the lived experiences of being a woman that is often seen as cis. It's Wes from Alabama. I was going to add on to the other lady from Alabama and the guy from South Carolina when they're talking about the issues of uh, women's rep reproductive rights and putting women in their place, so to speak. To me, I just kind of like when I hear those two things, I mean, what, yeah, those are uh, the upfront face value problems, but like, where, where do those problems stem from? And my answer is the Bible. I mean, that's, if you read the Bible, it's a horrible horrible example of how to treat women and uh, I, don't know, I think we have a lot of problems that stem from that especially being in the deep south very religious and uh i also agree with the guy from south carolina i have a two-year-old and i'm doing the best i can to try to get out of the south it's a poisonous place to raise a child thanks hi jay it's dave from olympia washington i am calling to respond to the voicemail from Erin from Philadelphia about sovereignty. Hi, Jay. This is Erin from Philadelphia calling. While we have you know, global trade, global capital, global communication, global media, two things that really stick out to me as being missing are global freedom, freedom of movement, which is a little beyond the scope here, and global governance, uh, particularly global democratic government, governance that can be re used to rein in the private sector. She's absolutely right. I don't have a, a, a response per se, because everything she said was absolutely correct. It just, it got me reflective. And it's one of the, it's in the situation of the difference between being right and maybe being politically expedient. Because I always like sovereignty. I like the argument. And, and part of it is that I have family and I live in a part of the country where discussions about United States sovereignty come up at least often enough that it, it, it's a relevant thing in my in my conversational lexicon. And it's always in the context of the UN or the Bilderberg Group or name your conspiracy theory secret government who is secretly controlling everything and supporting U.S. sovereignty. And I like 
the rhetoric of being able to talk about the loss of sovereignty suffered when these for-profit corporate entities steal rights and steal uh, sovereignty, the ability to act independently as a nation or as a state in the way that the voters want for the best interest of the citizens when that's subverted by these for-profit corporate entities. And so I like the argument, you know, to point out the dichotomy that there are these mythical, probably not real, okay, not real, you know, world governments that aren't really subverting our sovereignty. But if you're worried about, worried about sovereignty, you should be worried about XYZ. You should be worried about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You should be worried about the effect that uh, legalized bribery has on our political system. And so just to point out that I think Aaron's absolutely right, there is reasonably a need to talk about larger governance. You know, what's the role of a of a of a world governing body to counterbalance multinational for profit entities that individual nation states are not able to effectively resist? It's a great extension of, of the conversation. So I guess the point of the call is that she's absolutely right. And I'm conflicted because of it. So, um, uh, everyone, stay awesome. Till next time. Hi, Jay. This is John in Stanford, Connecticut. Longtime listener, first time caller. Uh, referring to um, a, a message recently from Nathan in Vancouver regarding um, authoritarianism. Uh, he, Nathan, referenced John Dean's Conservatives Without Conscious. A conscience book, which is uh, actually quite good. I would like to just redirect listeners to uh, the work of Bob Altemeyer, A-L-T-E-M-E-Y-E-R, who published a book called The Authoritarians, sort of like launched open the whole body of of research into this particular personality trait. Uh, it's quite fascinating. Uh, it helps to understand what the other side is thinking of or how they do think and how they perceive out groups, how they perceive uh, change or, or not react to it. Anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. Bob Altemeyer, A-L-T-E-M-E-Y-E-R. He's a professor in Canada. book is great, uh, as is your show. Uh, there's a, and also Chris Mooney has um, uh, written quite a bit on the Republican brain, um, other things that I'd like to put out there. Thanks, Jay. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, especially Kara, who went way out of her way to send in a ton of clips, especially on this topic. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I I just want to reflect back for a moment on the previous episode I did on trans rights. Uh, It it wasn't just the previous one. It was the only one I had ever done, uh, sort of shamefully, after doing 700 or more episodes um you know i I hadn't done an uh, an episode on trans rights it's just as as people are you know if you're aware at all you are all too painfully aware that it is a subject that doesn't get talked about very much so i found it difficult to put a show together on it Uh, but back on december 3rd which by the way i was surprised to realize how far back that was i i would have guessed that it was more recently than that but back on december 3rd I posted my first ever trans rights episode and the reaction to it was, uh, 
I would say mixed at best. Those who were sort of uninformed on the on the topic, myself included, thought, you know, the episode was pretty good. Interesting. Like, not the best thing I'd ever heard, but like, all right, you know, thanks, thanks for bringing it up. I learned something. It was, you know, pretty good. Whereas those who were familiar with the issue uh, were, you know, anywhere on the spectrum from mildly disappointed at best to horrified at worst. You know, one, one said that it did more harm than good. It was just, you know, terrible language was used that is just, you know, incorrect and wrong. And uh, basically the whole framing of the conversation was often wrong. And, and you know, pers- perspectives given were not appropriate when it could have been so much better and so on. And obviously, I hope that this one went over a little bit better, uh, but I want to thank ev- everyone who chimed in on that conversation, either in, in immediate reaction to the episode or in the conversation that was drawn out over the course of several following episodes in the voicemail section. Uh, but I want to thank all of those people f- for chiming in because it was that conversation and, and you know other research I've had time to do now that has really helped guide my thinking and awareness on the subject. So I certainly hope that this episode will spur, spur more conversation and move the collective understanding even further beyond just the sort of 101 level material. And so if you want to chime in, have any questions or comments, the number again is 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained